Have you ever heard folks at church say things like, those new songs are too shallow. Those new songs neglect the traditional theology of the church. We just don't know those new songs. Those new songs just don't mean as much as the old songs I grew up on. Those songs just sound too worldly. Have you ever heard people say those kinds of things in the church? Did you know that these are the kinds of things that people were saying in the early 1500s when a new style of worship music was being introduced called congregational hymns? Hymns were new and different and they sounded like everyday music and they made people in the church feel uncomfortable. This morning, I want us to continue to think about the weird words in great hymns. Because the hymns are great. And we do learn so much. But we also know that those of us who grew up in church, we grew up saying words that we had no idea what we were saying. And so we've had some fun the last few weeks looking at some of those weird words in great hymns. And this one particularly is important in the, in, in, as we think about hymns because it was one of the early ones. It was one of those that was introduced to the church at a time when people were saying, I don't know if the church should, should be singing hymns. It, the history of hymns goes way back. Soon after the church was established, false teachings started creeping in almost immediately after all those great events in the book of Acts. Almost immediately, false teachings started creeping into the church and it was in the late 200s that a parish priest named Arius started teaching that Jesus was not eternal, was not really God, but that he was a created being, that God created Jesus. To spread his heresy, poets started writing hymns based on his teachings. And before long, other church leaders rebuked Arius and criticized those Arian hymns for spreading a false doctrine. So people like Bishop Athanasius and Bishop Ambrose started writing hymns with the true theology about who Christ was. So in the, year, in the years 200s, the first part of the 300s, the church is singing hymns. But they're singing hymns that either represent a heresy or combat that heresy. And so it caused a great deal of conflict within the church. So somewhere around 360, all the, the leaders of the church from the known world at that time, all the leaders of the church got together at Laodicea. And they said, we have a problem. The hymns are splitting the church. And so their solution was that 
From that moment on, people were not to sing hymns in church. Matter of fact, the people were not to sing at all. All of the singing that was, to, that was done in church was done by worship leaders who sang from the pulpit and who sang from a book that had been approved in this meeting. And that style of worship lasted for a thousand years. Imagine for a thousand years, the pews were quiet. No singing. One of the major objectives of the Protestant Reformation was to bring God's word and the hymns back to the people in the pews. Again, at that time, not only were the people not singing hymns, they also weren't reading the Bible because the Bible was only available to those who could read the ancient languages. And then it was explained and, and read in church in Latin. So people in countries that, where the folks didn't know Latin couldn't read the Bible. They wasn't accessible to them. And so one of the major objectives was to get, the, get God's word and hymns back to the people in the pews. So in 1501, the followers of Jan Hus, or we say it, John Hus, was called, they, these followers of John Hus called themselves the Moravian Brethren. And they compiled the first modern day hymn book against the wishes of the church, they, they compiled the first modern-day hymn book designed for congregational use. It had 89 hymns in it, and they were written in the Czech language. Many of you probably recognized the connection when I said the Moravian brethren, because these are the spiritual ancestors of our friends down the church at down the street at the Brethren Church. Soon after that hymnal was introduced, there was a monk in the church whose name was Martin Luther. And it was he who really got the church singing again. You know Martin Luther as a theologian, but he was also a very gifted musician. Because he taught priesthood of all believers. He felt that everyone in the church ought to be able to read the scriptures for themselves and that they ought to be able to sing. So he translated the New Testament into his native tongue, German. So everyone could read it. And he started writing hymns and sharing them with the church. Finally, after a thousand years of silence in the pews, God's people began to once again fulfill the scripture that's taught in Ephesians 5 and 19, where the church was said that we're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It was God's plan all along that we sing. Hymns had to be introduced again. And by the way, those who first started introducing hymns 
many of those lost their lives. The thing that triggered Martin Luther into getting started with his work in this area was that two priests were burned at the stake because they thought that people ought to be able to actively worship and to have the Bible. And it's important for us to recognize that before the church said, you can't sing, God said, church, you must sing. He he said that we are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Isn't it interesting that even in Scripture, there is room for different kinds of singing? I, I think that that balance is important. That's why we've incorporated it in our worship. There needs to be a balance. Psalm, hymn, spiritual songs. So in 1523, two priests are killed because they are saying we need to change things and reform the church. And when that happened, Luther sat down and he started writing. And one year later, he published a a hymnal, and in that hymnal was a hymn based on Psalm 46 called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that great hymn, there there are a couple of really weird words. This morning, I want us to look at one weird word, bulwark. He's a bulwark. Never failing. Huh? I, I get that there's something there about that we can trust him. But what is a bulwark? Never failing. We're going to look at it. We're going to look at the hymn very quickly. But before we look at the hymn, let's look at the psalm on which that hymn is based. Psalm 46. If you have your copy of scripture with you, I invite you to Psalm 46. Those of you who like to follow the event in the Bible app, you should be able to find it there as well. But we're in Psalm 46, beginning at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This passage may be familiar to you. You've probably heard it through the years. This passage was the text that we depended on that first Sunday after the explosion. The first time we were out in the field. This is, these are the verses that we turn to. And we reminded one another that God is our refuge. Refuge is a safe place. It's, it's not so much a place to hide, I would say, as it is a place to find security. A refuge, a place to get away from 
the enemy away from the, the danger, but it's a, a place to find security. God is that for his people. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Even when the world, even when the world doesn't make sense, when the world is turned upside down, when, when life is, is just torn to shreds in front of you, he is still who he is. That refuge, that strength, that present help. Therefore, we will not fear, even if the earth gives away, even if mountains are moved to the heart of the sea, even if the, the sea uh, roar and, and foam, the waters of the sea roar and foam, no matter what's happening, if there's an earthquake, if there's a volcano, if, if the earth around me just trembles and shakes and falls apart, I'm not going to fear because I have one who is my refuge and one who is my strength. That is exactly what Luther was thinking of when he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. Let's look at that first verse of that great hymn. He writes on, based on these first three verses, he summarizes it this way, a mighty fortress is our God. A fortress is exactly what comes to mind probably. A fort. Maybe, maybe you picture a castle. It, it, you can't get in there. That stronghold, that building of protection. He is a mighty fortress. God is not just some kind of a lean-to shed. He's a mighty fortress. And the people who reside in him will be kept safe. A bulwark never failing. There's our word. The bulwark is the main wall of the fortress. And the enemy might try to come in, but that wall is going to keep them out. That wall is going to protect God's people. And this is a wall that never fails. No matter what comes against it, it will stand. That's the kind of God we serve. A mighty fortress, a bulwark who never fails, our helper he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. In other words, he prevails no matter what's going on around us. Even as the psalmist said, though the earth give way, no matter what happens around us, he will prevail because he is that mighty fortress. And then the last half of that verse Reminds us that we do have an enemy that we need to be protected from. We, we need a fortress and a bulwark because there is an enemy out there causing trouble. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. Woe means sorrow. He's out there to make life stink. He's at it every day. He and his little buddies are running around constantly making sure that life is difficult. Still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And he's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Well, my, my, if we stop there, look, there's no hope. 
earlier Kendall was asking, you know, how many verses do I sing? And I said, well, you got it. You kind of have to sing them all because we're certainly not going to stop at the end of verse one with the enemy out there. Who's, who's more powerful, cruel, hate and, and on earth is not his equal. But you and I know the, the power of that last phrase is not that no one is his equal, but it is on earth is not his equal, right? He is the power of this world, but you and I are, are related to the power beyond this world. You remember 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4? Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So yeah, verse one ends with a reminder that we've got a foe out there. That's why we need a God who's a bulwark that never fails because we've got a foe out there and nobody on earth is his equal. But the good news is our God is not of this earth. The one who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. So we don't want to stop the hymn at verse one. We've, we've got to tell the rest of the story. So we go on to verse two. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. If you depended on your own goodness, to be safe in life and to have life after death, if you depended on your own strength to make sense of this life and to make sure life later, then your striving would be losing. Your work would be in vain. Luther wrote this at a time when he was trying to send a message, you can't be good enough and do enough of the right things to be right with God. You can't do it on your own. In our strength, we confide, then our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You see how, why we can't leave it at verse one? We got to get to verse two because there we get to hear about the right man who's on our side. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who brings us the victory. The last half of that verse two, then he says, you ask who that may be? Well, I can't wait to tell you who the right man is, Luther says. Let me tell you about the right man who's on our side. Christ Jesus, it is he. Christ is Messiah, the chosen one, the, God, the one God promised, the one who represents God and is God. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. Sabaoth, what, what is that? We, we almost think it's Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. But that's not really the word. Sabaoth, or really it's, it's more like Sabaoth. Sabaoth, it, it, it is Lord of hosts. 
And when you see that phrase in the scripture, the word Lord is all capped. Does anybody remember from last week what that means? If it's all capped, it's using his personal name, Yahweh. And so when we see in scripture this name, and we do see it throughout scripture, old and new, Lord Sabaoth, we see Yahweh of hosts. What it means that he's the Lord of the hosts is that he's the commander of a vast army. Hosts speaks of myriads is another biblical term. It means bunch. Bunches and bunches and hundreds of thousands of angels. He is Lord, commander of a huge army. And that huge army is at his command. He uses his army to take care of his people. So, if you were to try to figure life out and make sure you were right with God on your own, your toil, your work would be pointless. But the good news is we have the right man on our side making it all happen. Who is the right man? Christ Jesus. It is he. The Lord of hosts is his name. From age to age, the same. The one who was there when David was being pursued by his enemies, when he was being persecuted, hiding in a cave to, to stay alive. The one who got him through that experience is the very one who was with the early martyrs, who got the early, uh, the early uh, believers through those difficult times of martyrdom. It was the same one who ensured that you and I have opportunity to worship him personally and individually. It is the same one who is with us today. From age to age, the same. And talk about victory. This right man never loses. He must win the battle. So the great news of the great hymn is that you try to figure out life on your own, you're fighting a losing battle. But you trust in the one who is the Lord of hosts and he'll never lose a battle because he is a strong and mighty fortress. We were in Psalm 46. Let me conclude here really quickly. I want to jump back to Psalm 46 and I want us to jump back to verses 6 and 7. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Nations are trying to show off who's powerful and they're fighting and struggling and they're working for power and look how tough they are and all that they can do and all our God has to do is speak one word and the earth could melt. The Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In that last verse seven and in the first verse one of that psalm, we hear that God is a God of power. We, we 
see him as a God who is present. And we recognize his provision. He's a fortress. He provides security. He's the Lord of hosts. He is all-powerful. He is a mighty fortress. And he, uh, he is a very present help in time of trouble, personal with us. That's the kind of God we serve. He provides, he is powerful, and he is personal. Beloved, we still live in a, in a world that is filled with dangers, toils, and snares. Have you found refuge in that mighty fortress? Are you living every day experiencing God's power and His presence and His provision? The way to enter into that kind of experience is to trust the right man who's on our side.